Grace and peace to you. Kiddos, I got a good joke today. So good. You're going to want to tell your teacher tomorrow. You ready? How did the barber cut the moon's hair? Eclipse it. Yeah, that's great. That's great. You're going to want that tomorrow, so keep it in mind. Well, you are dismissed to Children's Church. We love you. We're so glad you're with us, and to preteen class as well. Have a wonderful time with Pastor Amy and her team. <clears throat> well, like I said, grace and peace to you, beloved. It's good to be with you this morning. Um, I had a question. Have you had any good dreams lately? Hmm? Talking about Joseph the dreamer. And if you're anything like me, you have maybe once, at least once in your life, just wished you could have one of those legit biblical dreams, right? that showed you the way to go, that explained the future, that gave you something helpful or inspirational, or at the very least informative, uh, but not me. Oh, no, no, no. I kid you not. Three days ago, I dreamt that I was set on giving Pastor Amy a haircut, and I was totally miffed because she was really hesitant about letting me, and I kept telling her in my dream, it's just a trim, Amy, it's just a trim. But she remained unconvinced. And so, yeah, um, I am not a biblical dreamer in that particular way. No, Joseph and I, we don't have that in common. When we left Joseph, the dreamer of the dreams of God, he was rotting away in an Egyptian jail cell. He had been lied to. He had been thrown in jail unjustly. And he had, through God's gifting, interpreted the dreams of a couple of his fellow jailbirds, hoping that they would remember him when they got out. But alas, they did not. And so Joseph is sitting in the jail for two years completely forgotten, it would seem by everyone. It even seems that God himself has forgotten him. So it's dark days for Joe, okay? Meanwhile, on the other side of town, as far away from a dirty old jail cell as you can get, in the palace of Pharaoh, somebody else is having dreams. They are weird. They are even weirder than sheaves bowing down to other sheaves. They are weirder than stars bowing down to each other. As unexpected as it is, we will see that Pharaoh, a pagan emperor, the literal king of the world, is having the dreams of God. Is that even allowed? Like, he's a total pagan. He knows nothing of God, of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and yet, and yet, as we will see, as we're going to read it in just a second, the Pharaoh himself is dreaming the dreams of God. And for those of us, for those who have eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to understand, it's obvious, right? It's obvious that the spiritual waters are stirring in this story. God is on the move. Do you remember that story in the New Testament? That guy was crippled, and he would lay by the pool of Bethesda, and they would, and the story goes, like the tradition was, that uh, during various seasons, an angel of the Lord would descend on the waters of the pool. And when the waters were stirring, that meant the angel was there, and you could get in the water and be healed, right? And so there's this image of the stirring of the waters, indicating the presence of the Spirit. And as I was reading this text this week, that's the image that kept coming to mind. These waters are stirring. The Spirit of God is at move in Egypt, about to do something. The flat surface of the water is breaking, and those gentle ripples are spreading as God is beginning to move. So let's read together. We're going to be in chapter 41 today, Genesis chapter 41, uh, starting right off of that in verse 1. After two whole years, two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile, and there came up out of the Nile seven sleek and fat cows, and they grazed in the reed grass. 
Then seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the banks of the Nile. The ugly and thin cows ate up the seven sleek and fat cows, and Pharaoh awoke. Then he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. Seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. Then seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind, sprouted after them. The thin ears swallowed up the seven plump and full ears. Pharaoh awoke, and it was a dream. In the morning, his spirit was troubled. So he sent and called for the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was no one who could interpret them to Pharaoh. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The water's stirring. Something's happening. Here's the thing. Pharaoh is a pagan. No knowledge of the God of the universe. The only world he knows is the world of the whole menagerie of gods, right? Sun God Ra, ruler of the underworld Osiris, the guy with the weird, like, jackal head, whatever his name is. Yeah. The God of the dead, Hathor, the goddess of fertility. So what's he supposed to do with this? He has no language to name it. He has no, uh, like, framework in his mind to understand the movement of God, what God is doing, what God's about to do. And so what does he experience when he has these dreams? Not enlightenment. He's scared. The unknown, the uncertainty, the discomfort. Now, have you ever seen this in the lives of people around you? Like you see the waters of the spirit stirring in the hearts of family or in friends and coworkers, and yet they don't know God, and so they can't name it. Like God is at work in their life, but instead of being like excited or um, curious, they're instead fearful because they can't name that and recognize the work of God. Now, when I was in college, I was an RA, a resident assistant, and we actually have a couple of kids of ours that are going to be that. Caleb and Macy, right, is an RA this year, is she not? It's an awesome job. And uh, I basically treated it like a crash course in pastoral care. Like all I needed to know about pastoral care, I learned from attending to 35 freshman girls, right? Uh, yeah, it was trial by fire, I'll tell you that. It sounds like a great book. But anyway, as I uh, grew and I matured in my role as an RA, and as I was kind of trying to live into my vocation as a pastor at the time, I began to have these extra set of eyes. And not like back eyes in the back of your head, like mom stuff, not like that. No, more like I began to have these eyes to see the stirrings. Not always. Sometimes I was totally oblivious. Don't get me wrong. But sometimes it was like these extra eyes saw something below the surface in these girls' lives, you know? Like the stirrings of the spirit as these women in my care wrestled with their faith, with their identity, with their wounds and their regrets. And you could almost feel the wave of the spirit moving in their lives, calling them to deeper faith and trust. They just needed the language to help name what was already going on. Do you see what I'm saying? The stirrings of the spirit, and it needed a name. But who's going to do that for, for Pharaoh? Like, who's going to help him recognize and name what God is doing to understand the movement of God and what he's about to do? So right about now, Joseph's jail buddy. Do you remember the story? The guy, he was in the jail with him, and, and uh, Joseph interpreted his dream. and says, yeah, in just a few days, you're going to be released, and it's going to be great. And the guy was like, sweet. And he said, hey, uh, when you get out, can you mention my name? I'm in here unjustly. Can you help me out? He's like, oh, absolutely. Oh, you just gave me such great news. I'll help you out, brother, right? Uh, no. Two years later, he has done nothing, right? And so as Pharaoh is panicking, like, I have this dream, and I don't know what to do with it, this guy pipes up, uh, Pharaoh, so um, I might know a guy. So there was this thing 
a while back. <laughs> and boom, Joseph is on the scene, right? He's called in to interpret Pharaoh's crazy dream. And it's a risk for Joseph, no doubt. But Joseph has eyes to see the stirring, to see the movement of the spirit. So let's keep reading, starting in verse 14. Then Pharaoh sent for Joseph, and he was hurriedly brought out of the dungeon. When he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, it is not I. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. And then Joseph goes on to, or the Pharaoh goes on to describe the weird cow and corn dream. I won't read it to you again. So picking up at verse 25, he's just described this dream again. And Joseph says to Pharaoh, Pharaoh's dreams are one and the same. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven good years. And the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after the seven years, as are the seven empty ears blinded by the east wind. They are seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh. God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout the land of Egypt. And after them, there will arise seven years of famine. And all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land. The plenty will no longer be in the land because of the famine that will follow, for it will be very grievous. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that this thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. Cows. Cow dreams. Do you have cow dreams? Do you have cow dreams? Right? We, it's like, yeah, yeah, I do. Yeah, weird. But, but not to Joseph. Not because he was just smarter than everybody else, but because he had eyes to see and he had our heart to understand that God was on the move, right? And also he had a newly acquired understanding of Egyptian culture, right? Because Joseph knew that cows meant something. One of the many gods in the whole menagerie of Egyptian gods was Hathor, right here. It was embodied as a, represented as a cow, and they were thought that she was stretched across the sky, and she was the caretaker of the Milky Way, which was the Nile of the sky, right? And so the function of Hathor, the Egyptian cow god, right, uh, was to provide uh, the overflow, to cause the Nile to overflow every year. And when the Nile would overflow, it would flood all the land, and that's what made it fertile so they could actually grow crops and, you know, like not starve, okay? So without this annual flooding initiated by the cow, Hathor, the cow-like god, Egyptian would have been this famine-ridden wasteland all the time, okay? So the cow, kind of a big deal. And Joseph sees exactly what God is saying. Joseph sees the water stirring, sees that God is making a declaration about the empire and its power. He's saying, you know what, Pharaoh, I hate to break it to you, but your almighty cow can't save you. It might be nice and plump now, but famine is coming, and your juicy cow isn't going to be anything but a bag of bones. The Nile, your great source of wealth, your source of sustenance, and your foundation upon which you built your empire, it can't save you. Your future, so sure and so assured, based on your power as emperor, is bleak, like the sorry state of those cows. Now, it may seem like a meaningless statement to you and me, right? To declare the Nile impotent, to proclaim that the pagan gods are powerless, because you and I were like, uh, duh, there's no cow god in the sky, that's silly, right? So we don't get it. We don't get why that is such an offensive and like bold thing for Joseph to say. But what if we modernized it for a second? What if I said instead of sickly cows, 
What if I talked about tanks or airplanes or battleships? And Joseph instead declares, your power, your military might cannot save you. You are weak and powerless in the face of this God's future. The thing that you pride yourself in the most uh, as a strong nation is just a skinny, bedraggled cow in the face of God. The God of this tiny little family, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. It almost seems laughable, right? Considering how strong we are. And frankly, it's a little offensive when you put it that way, preacher. Good. Because it's supposed to be. God, or Joseph is declaring that the empire is powerless in the face of God. In the face of the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and that scrawny little ex-con Joseph who's standing in front of him. It's a great reversal, is it not? This powerless foreigner, a nobody prisoner, declaring to the emperor, the king of the world, that God, his God, is the future maker. Not Pharaoh, not Nile, not half or the cow, or any other of the pagan gods. This God of this little desert family, a bunch of landless nomads, is the future maker. And Pharaoh, see, Pharaoh's weird dreams, they're not just about cows. And they're not even really about corn. It's not even about abundance and famine. These dreams are about God, about God's power to create and destroy, about God's sovereignty, God's action in the world, and as we'll see, about God's provision to make a way. It is, in fact, the dream of God continued. God making a way as he always does for God's beloved creation. God is the good future maker, working toward newness, working toward redemption, towards the dream, even through abundance and famine. But now what? God has made the future known to Joseph and now to Pharaoh. But now what? What are we supposed to do with this information? The divine is at work. Now, what's the human response? There is so much tension in that question, right? It's the eternal wrestling match between the passive, just wait for God to act, and the self-assured, just go and do it for myself. You know the tension, the two extremes, right? God's sovereignty, God is sovereign, God is ultimate. It is not my place to act or to do. It is my job to wait and watch, God will act. That's the one extreme. But then there's the other extreme of human agency that says, God has given me everything I need, so it's my job to get it done. None of this waiting around stuff, just go and do. There is a definite tension. When do we pick up our swords and do battle and When do we need only be still for the Lord will fight for us? Because there's a whole lot of both in scripture. And frankly, on either extreme of God's sovereignty to sit there and wait and our self-assured action of I have everything I need, I'm going to do it. There is unfaithfulness on either extreme, is there not? Whether it's the disobedient passivity or that self-assured idolatry. There is disobedience on either extreme. So let's see what Joseph does. He's explained the dream, and now he has a suggestion or two. Okay? So let's keep reading. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a man who is discerning and wise and set him over the land of Egypt. 
Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land to take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plenteous years. Let them gather all the food of those good years that are coming and lay up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to befall the land of Egypt, so that the land may not perish through the famine. The proposal pleased uh, Pharaoh with all of his servants. And so Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find anybody like this? One in whom is the Spirit of God? So Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is no one so discerning and wise as you. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves at your command. Only with regard to the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Removing his signet ring from his hand, Pharaoh put it on Joseph's hand. He arrayed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. He had him ride in the chariot of his second in command, and they cried out in front of him, Bow the knee! Thus he set him over the land of Egypt. And moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh. And without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. So Pharaoh gave Joseph the name Zephaneth Paneah, and they gave him Asenath, daughter of Pephira, priest of On, as his wife. Thus Joseph gained authority over the land of Egypt. Definitely a take action kind of moment, was it not? He had a plan. Joseph, with eyes to see how God was stirring those waters, moving in powerful ways in Egypt. He saw, Joseph saw with this crystal clear vision the way forward. He saw the problem. He understood a solution. And with Pharaoh's blessing, he put it into action. So God revealed, and in response, Joseph acted. There are certainly seasons in our lives, seasons where we need to be still, right? Wait for God's direct action. But how often? Has God revealed and provided everything we need to act to participate in God's good work? And we don't see it because we still have our eyes closed in prayer for a solution. It's right there. It's almost like praying for a birthday cake. Stick with me for a second. You close your eyes and you pray and say, God, oh, I just need a birthday cake. Please, Lord, just bless me with a birthday cake. And you open your eyes and lo and behold, there's flour, sugar, eggs, vanilla, and even a little pack of birthday candles. And with a frustrated sigh, you close your eyes and say, let's try this again. Dear Lord, please send me a birthday cake. God isn't the problem. We just need to pick up the hand mixer. God's future has been revealed. But it doesn't mean that we don't make plans. Rather, it means instead that our plans are shaped and molded and informed and sometimes, oftentimes, reshaped by God's future. God's future revealed doesn't call us to passivity, but rather to faithful responsiveness. And that is a totally different thing than humans gone rogue making plans based on our own knowledge and goodness and insight and ability, acting in faithful responsiveness is a posture of listening and then obeying, right? We listen and then we take action based on what God has revealed and on our gifts and graces. That's God's way in the world, for good or for ill. 
It is calling humankind to respond to God's revelation, to God's future revealed. Walter Brueggemann, who's like my theological crush these days, not going to lie. Don't worry, he's like 90. You're good. Uh, in his work on Genesis, he says it this way. The drama of God's future must be embodied and implemented by human imagination. Think about that for a second. The drama of God's future must be embodied and implemented by human imagination. Simply put is this. God's future needs bodies. And we're it. God's future doesn't float around the universe unattached or fall from the sky like rain. God's future is embodied. It comes to life as it is embraced and lived out by God's future, or by God's people. God's future inhabits bodies, and those bodies belong to us. And it is put into action by human imagination. Now, typically, we don't talk about imagination much in the church. Imagination is stuff for kids, right? It's not for grown-ups. It's what my kids do in the living room with seven blankets, a mini trampoline, and my yoga mat. And all of a sudden, it's like a magical world, Woo, right? But for adults, imagination is wasting time on what isn't when we should be rooted in reality in what is, right? Don't waste time on what isn't. Focus on what is, says the grumpy adult, right? But maybe not. You see, with your board, with your leadership team, we have been talking about imagination a lot these days, but not just any kind of imagination. We've been talking about holy imagination, imagination that has been shaped by the dreams of God, imagination to see what could be. You know, I think Joseph had a holy imagination. As he explained the weird cow dream to Pharaoh, I imagine the tiny ripples of God's movement growing into big, splashy waves, inspiring Joseph to think and to dream and to imagine a way forward through the future at hand. And it wasn't because he was just a really imaginative guy. No. Joseph's imagination had been shaped and molded by the dreams of God, by the promise of God. Do you remember God's dream? God's dream through Abraham's family, of which Joseph was a part, to save the world, to make for himself a people that would be a light to all creation, to every nation, every people, so everybody can come and know and love God the way God knows and loves them. And so Joseph's imagination had been shaped by that dream. And God's future revealed to him, he remembered those dreams. He remembered the dreams about the sheaves and the stars and how he was going to be a leader. He saw the gifts and graces in himself. And he responded in faithfulness to God's future, making a plan to embody that future, to find a solution through his God-dream-shaped imagination. The dreamer becomes the imaginer. He dreams the dreams of God, and then as God shows him what's to be, he responds with this holy imagination and gets to work. What could be? That's the question, isn't it? What could be? What could be? If we allowed the dreams of God to shape our imagination, what if, 
we plunged ourselves so deeply into the dreams of God, his dreams for redemption and wholeness and restoration, that through the church, our imaginations would be completely reshaped. So reshaped that we are no longer beholden to the way things are or even beholden to the way things always have been. But what if instead we were able to see our place as a church in this community in a totally new way? As a body of Jesus followers who passionately and enthusiastically seek the welfare of this precious town in the name of Jesus. A body of believers whose imaginations have just exploded with newness, not because of our own creativity or our own power to affect change, but based on the explosive love of God who dreams big dreams for creation, who has big dreams for this church and for this community, dreams of restoration and of redemption and of wholeness and healing of broken things and broken people. And what if we didn't just pray for a cake? What if we took the tools that we've been given by God, the gifts and the graces, the blessings and the provision, and we got to measuring and mixing and respond in faithfulness to God's good future revealed? I will be bold this morning and say this. I think we, the church, are the answer to the hurts our country is facing right now. I know that's bold, but I believe the church, with its holy imagination ablaze with love, the love of God, is the answer for the division and the ugliness and the racial abuses and the injustices and the violence because it is only the church shaped with resurrection vision that knows God can bring forth life from death. The church is the only place that has the imagination to both see and embody God's good future of healing for creation. God's good intention, God's good future for this world. But we must embody it. We, the church, we must act it out with our neighbors with our friends, with our strangers, with people who are drastically different from us, with those people who have perspectives that are offensive to us. We must embody God's good future through redemptive love, through confession, and through forgiveness. As Joseph traveled that crazy road to Egypt, remember the shoots and the ladders, the ups and the downs of his time there from me rotting in jail and then nervously walks into the chamber of Pharaoh. Scripture tells us explicitly in chapter 39 that God was with Joseph. Every step of the way, God was with him. And not in some like pocket-sized God tucked in his pocket for encouragement on hard days like a God Advil, if you would. But God was with him making a good future for him. And not just for him, but for his whole family and all the people of Egypt. God was making a future, and he was extending an invitation to Joseph to join him, to partner with him in that good future. And so the good news 
The good news for us today is that God is still the good future maker. God is still making a way for his people, for all people to know and love him the way God knows and loves us, to find healing and wholeness and restoration in his name. And you know what else? God is still sovereign. Sovereign over pharaohs, over kings and presidents. Pharaoh had no power to make a future, to bring life from death. He was powerless. He was marginal. He was nothing. Only God can make a future, not a politician. Only God can bring forth life from what is dead. Only God and anything else is idolatry. And God is still inviting God's people to join him in that good future. Still inviting people to dream the dreams of God. Still inviting people to allow their imaginations to be shaped by those dreams. Still inviting people to embody God's future, to put their imaginations to work, to use their unique gifts and graces to enact God's future. God is inviting you with your unique gifts and graces, skills, and passions to enact God's good future in this church and in this town. God is inviting us as a body with our unique gifts and graces, skills, and passions to enact God's good future for this town. So the good news, God is still the future maker God is still sovereign over kings and presidents, and God is still inviting people to join him, to dream his dreams, to practice holy imaginations, to bring that good future to life. But the best news of all, God is with us. God is with us. God was with Joseph when he was that highly favored son. God was with Joseph when he was struck in a pit. God was with Joseph when he was stumbling along a camel on his way to Egypt. God was with Joseph when he was running the household of Potiphar. God was with Joseph when he was unjustly thrown into jail. And God was with him when he was given the keys to the kingdom. God was with him, guiding and shaping and inviting. Not for a moment, was he alone? And so too, not for a moment, not for a single moment, are we alone. We are invited forward into God's future to dream God's dreams, to develop those holy imaginations that have been shaped by God's goodness, to boldly act in full assurance of God's faithful, sustaining presence. What good, good news and what a bold, bold call to embody God's good future and to live it out with holy imagination based on the unshakable truth that we are never alone. God himself walks with us. Lord, we believe it to be true that not for a moment do we stand alone. Lord, you are on the move. The waters are stirring. You are on the move. You have big dreams for your creation. Dreams of redemption and restoration, of reconciliation. 
And sometimes as we look out at the world, we think, what? It's not possible. But you are a God who brings dead things back to life. You are still making a good future. You are still sovereign over kings and presidents. You are still inviting your people to embody your good future. And so, Lord, we respond to that call today. Invite us, Jesus. Show us the way. And as you reveal, as you call us, as you give us the flour and the sugar and the eggs, Lord, we promise to get out the hand mixer. We will take the gifts and the graces that you have given us and we will put them to action as participants in your good mission. Just give us eyes to see. Give us ears to hear. Give us hearts to understand what you're doing and we will obey. Thank you for the invitation. And thank you for the promise that you are with us. By the power of the Spirit and the name of your Son we pray. Beloved, Christ Church, may you go from this place and allow your imaginations to be shaped by the dreams of God. May you walk in full trust of his sovereignty, of his goodness, and of his invitation. And may you walk from this place and make the cake, using your gifts and graces to the glory of God. Go in action and go in peace. Amen. You are dismissed.